Chapter 12 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 12 An Unfortunate Rencontre An Adventure Miss Brotherton Grows Wiser Every Day Mrs. Tremlett's inquiries proved successful. Jim Sykes, the weeding boy, knew perfectly well where Widow Armstrong lived, and after he had repeated his instructions three times, Mary Brotherton and her unresisting chaperon set off on their expedition. On one point only did the self-willed heiress yield to the judgment of her companion. Mary, who knew that though she seldom went beyond the shelter of her own park paling, she often walked without fatigue within it for two or three hours together, wished to set off for Hoxley Lane on foot. But Mrs. Tremlett talked so much of the fatigue that the good-natured girl consented to let the carriage convey them to the point at which the lane diverged from the high road. This yielding, however, was wholly from consideration for her companion. For herself, she believed the precaution quite needless, and she was right. However much her temper might have been endangered by the series of spoiling processes she had undergone, her health had been taken good care of, and few girls of her age in any rank had greater power and will for exertion than herself. Nevertheless, before she had driven half a mile, she heartily rejoiced at having sacrificed her own inclination to that of her good nurse, for the road to Ashley was the favorite ride of the officers quartered in the neighborhood, and had she been seen on foot, it is probable that before reaching Hoxley Lane she would have been surrounded by a bodyguard of military. So greatly did this danger appall her spirits that the first moment she found herself free from a white-gloved hand, either at one window or the other, she stopped the carriage, and ordered the coachman to go far enough down the lane to permit her to get out unobserved by any persons passing by the road. But poor Mary was this day doomed to disappointment, and the indignant and almost passionate beating of her heart under it made her more conscious, perhaps, than she had ever been before, how deeply the business upon which she was engaged had entered into her soul. Soon after Sir Matthew Dowling had dismissed his breakfast companion, he strolled out towards his splendid stables, and, perceiving his son loitering among the grooms, and himself equipped for the saddle, he inquired whether he was going to ride. "'Only to Ashley, Governor,' was the reply. "'Then wait five minutes, Augustus, and I will ride with you.' Whether the youth approved the proposal or not, he was fain to submit to it, and the evil star of Mary Brotherton contrived to bring them to the top of Hoxley Lane at the moment her carriage was about to turn into it. "'Stop!' cried the young lady, accompanying the word with a very energetic pull at the check-string. "'Go on to Ashley,' was the order that followed. "'Was ever anything so provoking, nurse? Do you see who those hateful men are?' "'Why, tis Sir Matthew, my dear,' replied the gentle old woman. "'The wretch!' muttered Mary between her teeth at the very moment that Sir Matthew on one side and his languishing son on the other besieged her carriage. "'Not for my right hand would I give him guess where I am going.' thought she, as with a face suffused with the deepest carmine that agitation could produce, she forced her lips into an unmeaning smile and returned to their salutation. The father and son came to exactly the same conclusion, and at the same moment. There was but one cause that it was possible to assign for her evident emotion. She was deeply in love with Augustus, more deeply than even the young man himself had imagined. The thing was plain, no doubt remained. No, not a shadow of it on the mind of either father or son, but it was the elder gentleman only who at once determined to push so fine a game to its close with as little delay as possible. 
feeling quite sure that there was no liberty he could take at this moment which would not be welcome, he made a sign to the coachman to stop, and deliberately dismounting he threw his reins to his groom, told Miss Brotherton's footman to open the carriage door, and stepped in with the assumed air of a partially loved friend who knows that no leave need be asked. Mary shrunk back into her corner with considerably more disgust than if a reptile had possessed itself of the seat opposite. "'This is not quite as it should be, is it?' said Sir Matthew with a leer. "'Perhaps some other may have a better right here than I.' And a very expressive smile accompanied the words. "'Sir,' said Miss Brotherton, "'come, come, my dear child, you must not look vexed at any of my little jokes. You know how we all dote upon you, dear creature.' How beautiful that sweet blush makes you look! He <laughs> he! There goes poor Augustus looking very much as if he could wring his papa's neck off. But his turn, we will hope, may come by and by. And now, my dear, I'll tell you what I am come here for. We all want you and your good Mrs. Tremlett too, if she likes it, to come over to us quite en famille tomorrow. I don't know what love powder you have been scattering amongst us but there is not a single individual of the family who does not positively dote upon you. Tell me, my pretty Mary, do you feel a little kindness for some of us in return? An attempt to take her hand accompanied this speech, and Mrs. Tremlett, who estimated pretty nearly her young lady's affection for Sir Matthew and his race, actually trembled for the consequences. But to her surprise, Mary answered after the pause of a minute, Oh, dear Sir Matthew, you are only laughing at me in a voice so exceedingly childish and silly that it might, under similar circumstances, have made the fortune of a comic actress. And though she did not permit him to touch the hand he attempted to take, she placed it together with its fellow so playfully behind her that Sir Matthew could only laugh and call her dear, pretty creature. Meanwhile the carriage proceeded to penetrate through the dirty dismal streets which in that direction formed the suburb of Ashley. "'I must get out here,' said Miss Brotherton, suddenly pulling the check-string. Here? Impossible, my dear child. Nothing is impossible to me that I choose to do, sir, said the young lady, springing to the ground the moment the door was opened. The night was fain to follow. The animated Augustus threw himself from his horse at the same instant, and Mrs. Tremlett held herself suspended on the step of the carriage to learn what she was required to do. I wish to know what is the matter with these miserable-looking children said Mary, approaching a half-open door at each side of which, crouching on the stone step, sat a pale and squalid-looking girl. The eldest might be ten years old, the youngest was certainly not more than six. "'Gracious heaven, you are not going to speak to those creatures, Miss Brotherton!' exclaimed Sir Matthew, while his son instinctively backed his horse into the middle of the street. "'And why not, Sir Matthew?' said Mary. "'You are not aware of what you are doing.' I give you my honour you are not. You have no conception what these sort of creatures are. My dear, dear Miss Brotherton, get into your carriage. Get into your carriage, I conjure you. Mary looked at him, but said not a word in reply. What ails you, my little girl? said she, putting her hand upon the shoulder of the youngest child. Billy Roller, answered the little creature. The Billy Roller smashed her, said the eldest girl, which was falling asleep against the machinery as lamed me. "'Are you mad, Miss Brotherton?' exclaimed Sir Matthew. "'Surely, Mrs. Tremlett, you ought to prevent your young lady from exposing herself to such scenes as these.' "'Good morning, Sir Matthew. Do not let me detain you,' said the heiress, 
suddenly assuming the tone and style of a woman of fashion who chose to have her own way. These sick little creatures quite interest me. Besides, I must positively find out who Billy Roller is. It is an instrument used in the works, Miss Brotherton. You know not to what you are exposing yourself. Fraud, filth, infection, drunkenness. I give you my sacred honor that I think you are very likely to be robbed and murdered if you approach the thresholds of such dwellings as these. I beg your pardon, Sir Matthew, replied the heiress, but you must excuse me if I obstinately persevere in judging for myself. I know I am a spoiled child, neither more nor less, and as such you must either give me up or bear with me. Permit me to wish you good morning. I shall do no more than approach the threshold of this dwelling. I shall enter it. Having said this, she waited no further parley, but taking a ragged child in each hand, set her little foot against the door which already stood ajar, pushed it open, and walked in. Her first idea on looking round her was that perhaps Sir Matthew was in the right. Filth, she saw. Infection might lurk under it. And who could tell if fraud and drunkenness might not enter the moment after to complete the group? But there was little of selfishness and much of courage in the heart of Mary Brotherton, so she presently forgot every notion of personal danger, and was thus enabled to see things as they really were. On one side of the small bare chamber, and in some degree sheltered by the door which opened against it, stood a rickety machine once intended for a bedstead. Two of the legs had given place to brickbats, and instead of a bed the unsteady frame now supported only a thin layer of very dirty straw, with the body of a dying female stretched upon it. The only other article of furniture in the room was an old deal-box without a cover, but having a couple of planks, each about three feet long, laid across it, serving either for table or chairs as occasion might require. The walls, the floor, the ceiling, and the remnant of a window were all alike begrimed with smoke and dirt. It took not long to make this inventory, and having completed it, the young lady, still holding in each hand a staring child, turned towards the inhabitant of this miserable den and said, "'Are you ill, my good woman?' The being she addressed raised her heavy eyes, and in a voice so low as to be scarcely intelligible answered, "'Yes.' "'Have you no assistance, nobody to nurse you?' "'Nobody but these,' pointing to the children. "'Has any doctor seen her?' demanded Mary of the eldest child. "'No, ma'am,' replied the little girl. "'And how long has she been ill?' "'Ever since she'd come from the mill. "'And how long is that?' "'A twelve-month,' said the little one. "'I don't know,' said the elder. "'But, my poor children, you are not the only people that live with her, I suppose. "'Have you got any father?' "'Yes.' "'Where is he?' "'At the mill.' "'Have you got anybody else belonging to you?' said Miss Brotherton, shuddering. "'There's Sophie and Dick and Grace,' replied the eldest child. "'Where are they all?' again inquired Miss Brotherton. At the mill, was again the answer. Are Sophie and Grace grown up? Sophie is, answered the child, and Grace almost. Then why do they not stay at home, one of them at least, to take care of this poor woman? Cause they mustn't, I tense mother. You are not big enough to take care of her, my poor child. Why don't you go to the factory and let one of the bigger ones stay at home? They won't have me now, cause of this and as she spake the child held up a little shriveled right hand, three fingers of which had a joint deficient. I can't peace now, and so they won't let me come. And Sophie won't let me go cause of this, 
said the little one, slipping her arm out of a bedgown, which was the only garment she had, and displaying the limbs swollen and discolored from some violent contusion. "'My poor little creature! How did you do this?' said Mary tenderly, taking the little hand in hers and examining the frightful bruise. "'Twas the billy-roller,' said the little girl in an accent that seemed to insinuate that the young lady was more than commonly dull of apprehension. "'But how did it happen, my child? Did some part of the machinery go over you?' "'No, that was me,' cried the elder in a loud voice, and again holding up her demolished fingers. "'Twas the stretcher's billy-roller as smashed Becky.' "'Twas cause I was sleepy,' said the little one, beginning to cry, for she construed Mary's puzzled look into an expression of displeasure. "'They beats him dreadful, ma'am,' said the sick woman, evidently exerting herself beyond her strength. "'She's a good little girl for work, but they will fall asleep, all of em at times, when they be kept so dreadful long.' "'But these bruises could not be the effect of beating,' said Mary again, examining the arm. "'It is quite impossible.' "'Why, ma'am, the billy-roller as they beats him with "'is a stick big enough to kill with. "'And many and many is the baby that has been crippled by it.' "'There was something so hollow, so sunken in the woman's voice "'that Miss Brotherton felt terrified. "'The fact that a child of the size of the baby before her "'should have been beaten with such a weapon and with such violence "'seemed wholly incredible.' Again she thought of Sir Matthew Dowling's warning and wished that she were not alone. "'I am afraid that you are very ill,' said she, "'and I do not know how I can help you. Money I can give, but there is nobody here to make use of it for you.' "'Money,' murmured the sinking woman from her layer of straw. "'Money. You can give money. Oh, give it, give it, give it to her. Give it to the child. She knows what it is.' She knows I am dying for the want of it. It is too late for me, but give it, give it, and may God. Here the miserable creature's strength wholly failed. Her eyes closed, and to all appearance she was already a corpse. Oh, this is very dreadful, cried poor Mary, wringing her hands. Nurse will know better than me. And so saying, she turned eagerly towards the door. She be gone, mother, and haven't given nothing said the eldest girl in a voice so mournfully expressive of disappointment that, spite of her alarm, Mary stopped to take a half a crown from her purse which she put into the child's hand. She looked at the coin and in a half whisper ejaculated, Oh! Then, creeping to the bed, she put it into the palm of her mother's hand, pressing the fingers down upon it, and in an accent of interrogation uttered the word, Bread? This Mary heard, but not the answer to it for she had quitted the scene before it was uttered. On opening the door of the house, she started at seeing Sir Matthew Dowling still within a dozen yards of it. He was standing beside the carriage, with one arm extended to keep the door of it open, and the other resting against the vehicle on the opposite side of the opening, while his head thrust forward within an inch of good Mrs. Tremlett's nose effectually prevented her following her young lady, however much she might have wished to do so. He had, indeed, Upon Miss Bretherton's disappearance receded the good woman almost by force, and then addressed her in such a strain as was rapidly working her up to make an attempt to escape from the other side of the carriage, when the reappearance of the young lady released her from her thraldom. "'Mrs. Tremlett,' he said, "'are you aware of the awful responsibility which will rest upon you if anything unfortunate happens to your amiable but most headstrong young lady?' 
All the neighborhood know, Mrs. Tremlett, that she has, as it were, placed herself for protection in your hands, refusing all other counsel, and shutting her ears to all other advice, and it is thus that you perform your duty. Good God, sir, what do you mean? said the good woman in great agitation. Let me out, if you please, sir. If my young lady is in any danger, it is wicked to keep me sitting here. Let me out, sir. I will let you out, Mrs. Tremlett, replied the knight, still firmly retaining the position which so effectually kept her in. I will let you out. But first, for her sake and your own, it is my duty to tell you in a few words the sort of place she has now thought proper to enter. Don't struggle, Mrs. Tremlett, but hear me. It is not possible they can do her any personal injury as long as I am so near the door of the house as as present. Be very sure that from some hole or corner of the filthy premises some spying eyes are at this moment watching us. There is no danger of her being murdered now, but as sure as you sit there, Mrs. Tremlett, murdered she will be, if she goes without the protection of a powerful arm within such dens of sin and iniquity as she has entered now. One short moment more, Mrs. Tremlett. One short moment, while I tell what the creatures are among whom she has thrown herself. The house is notorious as one of the very worst in Ashley. The man is an habitual drunkard whom I and my excellent servant Parsons have endeavored in every possible way to reform, but in vain. The moment he has got his wages, he goes to the gin shop, and often and often he won't work at all which, of course, prevents his family from being in the comfortable, easy circumstances which they ought to be. If he happens to be in the house now, I dare say there is no species of indecent language to which your young lady will not be obliged to listen. As to the mother of the family, I believe she is dying in consequence of a life passed in all sorts of the most abominable wickedness. Indeed, I believe she is now half mad for I have been told by some of my people whom I have sent upon charitable visits of inquiry to her, that she lies in her bed inventing the strangest lies imaginable. Indeed, some think that notwithstanding she is so near death she still drinks, and that is nothing but drunken lies that she makes people listen to. Pray, pray, let me get out, Sir Matthew. Being murdered, sir, is not the only thing from which I should wish to save Miss Brotherton. One more word, Mrs. Tremlett, and I have done. The eldest girl is a notorious prostitute. Another, a year or two younger, is going the same way. The boy is suspected of being an extremely skillful thief, and the two younger girls, for they all work at my factory, Mrs. Tremlett, and I know them well, the two younger ones are such depraved little wretches, that for the sake of example we have been obliged to turn them out of the mill, though we are in great want of young hands to do the work. Now, madam, I have done and I leave it with you to judge how far it will be right and proper for Miss Brotherton to continue such frolics as these. Sir Matthew was in the act of pronouncing the last words of this speech as Miss Brotherton opened the door of the house and stepped out into the street. On first perceiving her, the knight appeared about to take her hand for the purpose of replacing her in the carriage. But his attention was called to the sound of many feet suddenly turning the corner of a street which led from a neighboring factory. It proceeded from the workpeople, who were rushing home in scrambling haste to snatch their miserable dinners. Gentlemen in Sir Matthew Dowling's situation, and enjoying the species of influence which belongs to it, take little or no pains to avoid meeting the people they themselves employ. They look not in the young eyes to read what sort of blessing cowers there, nor heed the crippled gait or pallid visage of those who exist but by the poisonous employment which he gives them. 
but such gentlemen seldom, if they can avoid it, expose themselves to the remarks of any gangs belonging to their neighbors, and no sooner did Sir Matthew become aware that the mill in the next street was pouring forth its fifteen hundred hands, than he turned from the young lady who had passed by without appearing to see him, and taking his horse from the hand of the groom who held it, sprung with great activity into the saddle, and galloped off the way his indignant son had galloped before him. Mary Brotherton, meanwhile, was utterly unconscious of the approaching throng, and intent only upon getting Mrs. Tremlett out of the carriage, turned her eyes neither to the right nor the left, but seizing her by the arm, exclaimed, "'Come to me, nurse, come to me!' The good woman, who was quite as desirous as herself of the reunion, required no second summons, but more quickly than it can be told, was first by the side of her young mistress in the street, and then entering with her the low door of the dwelling so fearfully described by Sir Matthew. Had Mrs. Tremlett possessed the power, most assuredly she would have turned the steps of her charge the other way, and for ever have prevented her from exposing herself to the contemplation of such depravity as she had heard described. But knowing perfectly well that no such power was vested in her, the next wish she conceived was to give all the assistance and support she could to the dear, willful girl to whom she had devoted herself. Aware as she entered the door that many eyes followed them, nay, that many steps were stayed, apparently to watch the spectacle so rare in Ashley of well-dressed ladies entering the sordid dwelling of operatives, Mrs. Tremlett herself closed the door as soon as they had both passed through it, and, looking round upon the desolation of the chamber, trembled with an emotion made up of terror and compassion, at perceiving to what a scene the delicately nurtured Mary Brotherton had introduced herself. "'This woman is very ill, Nurse Tremlett,' said the young lady, drawing her close to the bed. For God's sake, tell me what we had better do for her. My dear, dear Miss Mary, come away and send the doctor to her, answered Mrs. Tremlett, positively shaking from head to foot, as she contemplated the ghastly countenance of the woman, the filthy rag that imperfectly covered her, and the scanty straw upon which her stiffening limbs were stretched. This is no place for you, Miss Brotherton. Come with me, I say, this moment and we will send the doctor and money and clothes, too, if you like it. If I like it. Do you think I am amusing myself, Mrs. Tremlett? Feel her hand. Feel her pulse. I believe she is dying. These words, though spoken very quietly and deliberately, were uttered in a voice so unlike what she had ever heard from the young lady before, that the old woman became dreadfully alarmed. Oh, good God, she is losing her senses! were the words she uttered as she threw her arms round the person of Miss Brotherton, and vainly attempted to remove her from the spot on which she stood. "'Fie upon you, Mrs. Tremlett,' said Mary sternly. "'Do you fancy that you are doing me any good? Be satisfied that I am not losing my senses, and let me request that you will make an effort to recover yours. This woman's head is too low. My dear mother asked for pillows.' Here the steady voice faltered, but it was only for a moment. I want the cushions from the carriage, Nurse Tremlett. Will you get them, or shall I? Without answering a word, the terrified old woman hastened to obey her, and did so in the best manner. For calling to the tall footman, who continued to stand beside the open door of the carriage, he obeyed the summons, which he supposed to be preparatory to his young mistress making her exit, by very unceremoniously thrusting right and left the curious group that still lingered on the threshold. "'Give me the cushions from the carriage, Jones,' she said. "'Make haste, for God's sake.' The man stared at her for an instant in utter astonishment, and then did as he was ordered. 
Now get upon the box and bid the coachman drive as fast as he can go to the nearest doctor's. That's Mr. Thomas, I think, in Cannon Street. Tell him Miss Brotherton has sent for him, and desire him to get into the carriage directly. Having uttered these commands as rapidly as she could speak, Mrs. Tremlett carried a couple of the carriage cushions to the bed, and with the assistance of Mary and the elder child, managed to raise the woman into a position apparently less distorted and painful than before. "'Have you anything to give her?' said Mrs. Tremlett, addressing the child. The little girl, without answering, stepped to a sort of cupboard in the wall, and, taking thence a pitcher without a spout, and a mug without a handle, contrived to tilt up the former so as to make it discharge a portion of its contents into the latter. "'It is water,' said Mary, watching the operation. "'It will not hurt her, will it?' "'Nothing can hurt her, my dear love,' replied Mrs. Tremlett, her eyes filling with tears as she listened to the altered voice of her gay-hearted girl, whose smiles and frolics she had watched and indulged for so many years, but of whose deep feelings she had never conceived any idea till now. "'I don't think anything can hurt her now, Mary. Her pulse flutters, and her forehead is quite damp. I have sent for Mr. Thomas, and he will probably be here immediately.' Mary's only answer was silently pressing the hand of her old friend as she took from it the broken mug of water, and then, kneeling on the sordid floor, she applied it to the pale dry lips of the sufferer. The poor woman made an effort to meet it and swallowed a mouthful eagerly, and then, relieved probably by the change of posture and refreshed by the cool liquid, she stretched out the hand in which she still held Mary's half-crown and said, "'Go, Betsy, bye!' The child she addressed eagerly seized the money in the hand that had fingers to close upon it, and flitted through the door in an instant. The poor woman had again closed her eyes, but her breathing was more tranquil, and Mary hoped she had fallen asleep. With this persuasion she stood perfectly still and silent beside her, her own hand locked, though she was not conscious of it, in the grasp of her deeply affected nurse while her whole soul seemed settled in her eyes as she fixed them immovably upon what she felt to be the most awful spectacle that a mortal can gaze upon, namely, the passing of a human spirit from life to death. The little girl, whose swollen and discolored arm still remained uncovered, probably because she feared the pain likely to attend the replacing it in the sleeve, stood close beside her mother's head, childishly contemplating the cushions which supported it, and apparently as unconscious as they were, of the heavy loss that threatened her. But this stillness did not long remain uninterrupted. All the members of the family, who had been named as belonging to the factory, except the father, returned for the purpose of taking such rest and refreshment as one hour, nearly half of which was consumed by the walk to and from the mill, could permit. The latch was lifted by the eldest girl, a delicate-featured but dreadfully dirty creature of about seventeen, with a sort of sharp eagerness denoting the curiosity excited by the sight of the carriage stationed before their dwelling. On perceiving the death-like countenance of her mother, made distinctly visible by the noonday light that streamed through the open door, she suddenly stopped, clasping her hands together and uttering in tones that sounded like a shriek, "'Oh, God, she is dead!' "'No, not dead,' said Mary solemnly and without turning her eyes from the object on which they were riveted. "'Not dead!' She is sleeping. Hush! Do not disturb her. Close following on the heels of the first came a second girl, about a year her junior, but with a countenance much less prepossessing. Dirty she was, too, if possible more so than the others, and there was a look of stolid stupidity about her that, 
but for the sort of reckless audacity which lurked in her eye might have given the idea of an almost brutal want of animation a thin consumptive-looking lad of about fourteen followed after her and closed the door behind him as he entered oh mother he exclaimed as her sunken face caught his eye i wish i was alongside of ye and then we'd be buried together and without appearing conscious of the presence of the strangers he suddenly threw himself upon the tottering bedstead and nestling his face close to that of the dying woman kissed her passionately again and again my boy you may hasten her going by that said mrs tremlett gently be still be still all of ye but as she spoke she and mary too whose hand she continued to hold made way for the eldest girl who now eagerly but silently pressing forward dropped on her knees beside the bed and throwing her two arms over the emaciated body remained with streaming eyes that rested piteously on the face of her mother the second girl looked on till by degrees her heavy countenance appeared to stiffen into horror and she too drew near but with distended and tearless eyes that seemed to speak more of fear than love mrs tremlett looked anxiously into the face of her charge it was deadly pale and wore an expression of solemnity so new and strange that the good woman threw her arms around her in an agony of fond anxiety exclaiming my mary my dear dear child come away mary mary come away you can do no good this scene is not a fit one for you to witness you mistake nurse it is fit for me it is necessary for me do not disturb me nurse tremlett do not then after a short pause during which her eyes were closed and her hands crossed upon her breast she again whispered could she not pray with me shall i not ask her to pray with me my sweet girl she will not hear you i think said the old woman while the tears streamed down her cheeks but you shall be satisfied my darling and approaching the bed and leaning over the girl who knelt beside it mrs tremlett in a low but distinct voice pronounced the words shall we pray with you she was evidently heard and understood for the hands that for some minutes had lain motionless were with an effort brought together and clasped in the attitude of prayer mary who was eagerly watching her every movement suddenly stepped forward and gliding in between the eldest and the youngest girl dropped on her knees beside them mrs tremlett following close behind her knelt also and then with trembling lips and faltering voice but slowly distinctly and most reverentially mary brotherton uttered the last and most impressive of those sentences in our litany which is followed by the solemn petition for deliverance it was with a throb of pleasure at her heart and an exclamation of thanksgiving from her tongue that she heard the dying woman answer amen almost at the very instant she did so the latch was again lifted and mr thomas one of the three medical practitioners of ashleigh entered Miss Bretherton was not conscious of ever having seen him before, but he, like everyone else in the neighborhood, perfectly well knew the heiress by sight. And now, even now, in the awful chamber of death, bowed low before her. It would not be easy to describe the feeling with which she turned away from this ill-timed demonstration of respect. Yet it was with no harshness, for the struggle so often going on within us between our better and our worser natures, was at this moment so decidedly in favor of all that was good in her young heart that there was hardly place for any severer feeling than pity within it she had risen from her knees as he made his bow and turning gravely towards him said 
if anything can be done sir for this poor woman let it not be delayed i fear she is very ill certainly ma'am certainly miss brotherton my best attention may be depended on but will you first my dear young lady give me leave to observe that i would much rather see you in your carriage than here i really cannot answer for it it is in point of fact impossible to say whether there may not be something deleterious something noxious in short to your very precious health in the atmosphere of this room i thank you sir be sure i will take quite sufficient care of myself but it is not for me that your services are wanted it is here sophy the eldest girl seemed unconscious of what was going on for she remained perfectly motionless on the spot where she had first knelt down while the third sister who had been sent on the poor mother's last errand for bread and who had crept back unobserved into the room during the foregoing scene occupied the space on her right hand mary brotherton having knelt on her left so that there was scarcely space for the approach of the smart apothecary move my dear girls said mary gently laying a hand on the shoulder of each they both rose while mr thomas carefully storing the anecdote and aid of the gossiping part of his practice looked and listened with astonishment to what seemed to him the very unnatural conduct of the rich young lady and internally exclaimed a clear case of religious mania this as i ever saw she won't live long probably what a match it required no very long examination of the poor patient to discover that her last moment was rapidly approaching upon my word miss brotherton i really wish i could persuade you to come away persisted the medical gentleman as he once more turned towards her the air is becoming more mephitic every instant this woman is at the last extremity nothing then can be done for her said mary no ma'am nothing in the world not the whole college if they were present could keep soul and body together for another hour i would venture to say on this miss brotherton put a fee into his hand and bent her head in token that his business there was ended and that he might depart but he did not immediately obey the hint for pocketing the unwanted golden prize he seemed anxious to remain a little longer where such blessings abounded and returning to the bed again took hold of the poor woman's hand and then said in a voice of authority let me have some water it was mary only who seemed to understand his words and she immediately obeyed them placing in his hand the broken mug which she had set aside upon the floor the apothecary put the water to the lips of the poor woman and she again swallowed a little of it after which they saw her lips move as if she were making an effort to speak to them mrs tremlett leant over her and then with a stronger effort she articulated let me see william who is william said mrs tremlett raising herself is it one of the children it be father said betsy where is he to be found cried miss brotherton eagerly let him be sought for instantly where is he likely to be at the gin-shop replied the ungracious grace if you know where he is go for him said mary impressively and for god's sake let him not delay the girl she addressed stared at her as upon something utterly incomprehensible but she obeyed and in so short a time as to show that the gin-shop was at no great distance returned with a man of an exterior as filthy as the rest of his race wretchedly crippled in the legs and a complexion that spoke both of ill-health and intemperance what it is come to that is it already said the man looking wistfully at her from the bottom of the bed but with a countenance whose lines seemed too fixed in the expression of hard indifference to permit its exhibiting much feeling she asked for you father said sophy gently 
Then, taking one of her mother's hands in hers, she murmured, Mother, dear mother, open your eyes upon us. Father is here, and all of us, while large teardrops fell upon the livid face as she hung over it. The dying eyes were once more opened, and consciousness and recognition of them all were visible as she suffered them to rest first on one and then on another. The boy only, from his position, she could not see. But even then there seemed intelligence between them, and she certainly knew he was lying beside her, for her head rested against his, and she raised her left hand till her fingers touched his cheek. The youngest child, also when the mother's eyes opened, was too much behind her, but she seemed aware of her vicinity, and pronounced the words, Little one, probably her usual appellation, so distinctly as to make the child start, and instantly climb upon the bed to kiss her. The last movement was an effort to return this kiss, and the next moment Mrs. Tremlett removed the child's clinging lips from a corpse. A very awful interval of perfect stillness followed. "'Can I be of any further service to you, Miss Brotherton?' from the lips of Mr. Thomas, were the first words that broke it. Poor Mary only shook her head, but Mrs. Tremlett replied, "'No, thank you, sir, nothing more.' And with repeated bows and rather a reluctant step he departed, turning, however, to give another glance at the heiress as he passed out, for he was not without hopes that she might fall down in a fainting fit. Nothing, however, of the kind happened, and he disappeared. "'You will go now, Mary, dear,' whispered Mrs. Tremlett, "'and I will come here to-morrow to inquire about them for you.' "'Yes, I will go now,' replied the young lady. "'I cannot comfort them.' Then looking round upon the steadfast group, as if to discover which of them appeared in the fittest state to be spoken to, she fixed upon the little Betsy, and placing a couple of sovereigns in her hand, told her to take care of them, and give them to her father, presently adding, "'Tell your sister Sophie to come up to my house. This,' giving a card, "'is the place where I live.' She then led the way to her carriage, Mrs. Tremlett followed, and the next moment they were driving rapidly from the abode of the most abject misery, to a residence which every quarter of the globe had contributed to render luxurious. It was evident that the heiress felt no inclination to converse. Indeed, for by far the greater portion of the way her face was concealed by the handkerchief which she held to her eyes, and Mrs. Tremlett had too much real feeling to disturb her. After driving, however, through the handsome lodge gates and sweeping up the noble entrance of her mansion, where already, at the sound of her approaching carriage, two or three servants were seen waiting like a guard of honour to receive her, it seemed that her meditations had not been wholly confined to the deathbed scene she had witnessed, and that the sordid cabin with its misery-stamped inhabitants had made a deep impression. For the first and for many hours the only words she uttered after her return, spoken to the ear of Mrs. Tremlett as they walked arm in arm together through the hall, were these. I, too, am living by the profit of the factory house. Is the division just? Oh, God, is it holy? The old woman felt that she trembled violently, but she knew not what words to utter that might compose her. On arriving at the foot of the stairs, Mary withdrew her arm, and, mounting them more rapidly than her companion could follow, reached her bedchamber alone, which she entered, closing and bolting the door after her. End of chapter 12